Please be seated. This morning, if you'll turn, please, in your Bibles to Mark uh, chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Think about that hymn that we just sang while you're turning to Mark uh, chapter 9 about higher ground. And we're certainly going to look at some of that ground today. It reminds me of a story that I, I heard about a farmer. He was in a church, and they would have testimony time every Sunday night. And often this farmer would get up and his testimony was the same. He would thank God for his salvation. And he'd say, I'm not making much progress, but at least I'm well established. <clears throat> so that went on and on for months. And one day one of the, the pastor happened to driving by the field. And the farmer had his tractor stuck, right, I mean, up, up to the, almost the top of the back wheels. Pastor got out and said, well, brother, I can see that you're not making much progress, but you're firmly established. So let's not be firmly established, all right? We need to be, but let's make progress in our life. Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, and then we'll pray and then get into the message for today. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And after six days Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, and leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can wipe them. And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter, and Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let, let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank thee for thy precious and marvelous word today. I pray for the help of the Holy Spirit as we take a look at this passage and some other ones today regarding the transfiguration of Christ. And so help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, let me give you just a little bit of my thoughts behind what we're doing the next couple of weeks. There are three Sundays, including today, left until Resurrection Day. So I'd like to preach three messages on three events that took place leading up to Christ's Body resurrection. Obviously, on April the 4th, Resurrection Sunday, we'll be emphasizing Christ's resurrection. And so, Lord willing, I'm planning today to uh, preach about Christ's transfiguration. Next Sunday morning, Christ's triumphal entry. And then, of course, the third Sunday on uh, his death and things leading up to his death and what, what that was all about. So, today, we're going to take a look at Christ's transfiguration. Certainly a marvelous event in the life of the Lord. And then we're going to bring it to a close by looking at 2 Peter later on and take a look at some significances there. Some things I think will help us, I hope will help us, in our daily life. And especially in light of a lot of things that are going on in the so-called Christian world today. So number one this morning, the revelation. Now, Christ begins in chapter 9 by making a declaration. He says this, He said unto them, Verily, truly, I say unto you, there, that there be some of them that stand here. 
which shall not taste of death until they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. I find it interesting that Jesus made this declaration and he is introducing what is about to happen. He's referring to what was going to take place on that mountain. And I also find it interesting that the only thing he showed them was himself regarding the kingdom. And the Bible is filled with all kinds of details about that kingdom. And yet, the really the most important thing is Christ himself. And so, there's his revelation. And really, this was intended um, to be recorded in Scripture for uh, following generations, but also to give Peter, James, and John some much-needed encouragement. The Lord Jesus had already been talking about how he was going to die on the cross, and he was going to leave them, and so on. And they were already they were perplexed about it. In fact, we'll see that confusion later on in the chapter. And so to give them some encouragement that, yes, he really is the Christ, he is the Messiah, and there will be a kingdom... But there's things that have to take place first. And here we are today, uh, 2,000 years later, we're still looking for that kingdom. We're still waiting for it, and it will come. All right, so here is the trend. Now, let's take a look at transfiguration. And six days, after six days, verse 2, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, and leadeth them up into a high, a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. So the word transfigured means to be changed into another form. Our English word metamorphosis comes from this word. So we have certain things like we have, we'll see caterpillars turn into a butterfly. They're still the same creature, but they're in a totally different form. That's the idea here. Jesus was still Jesus, but he was in a form that his disciples had never seen before. I want to make another comment. This same word is used in Romans 12, 2, when it says, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so the word there is a continual. It's the same word. Metamorpho in the Greek, which means a change, really a transformation. And so the, the, the Apostle Paul is exhorting believers to be transformed. And that's, that's a process, that's a continual transformation. It says, by the renewing of your mind. And so that's a, that's a complete overhaul of our thinking. Um, and in, in this world, of course, we are bombarded with unbiblical, ungodly thinking and philosophies and all those kinds of things. And it's only going to get worse until uh, before the Lord comes. So we need to have a mind. Well, And so the Lord Jesus gave them an example of what it means to be transformed and even what it means to be glorified. And this was, this was, this was done before Peter, James, and John, who were going to be the leaders of the new church when things begin or things that begin in the book of Acts. Anyway, so, this transfiguration, look at verse 3, and his raiment, that is his garments, became shining, exceeding white as snow. In other words, beyond the whiteness of snow, and 
According to the Bible, they're, they're probably, and when we look around us, probably there's nothing brighter, except the sun maybe, but a, a new, a, a freshly fallen snow. There's very little that's, you know, that's whiter than brand new snow. We sure got to see a lot of that this past year. Now the Bible says, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. So there's a there's something about that. Uh, the whiteness of snow uh, pictures purity and holiness and cleansing. So they saw the Lord Jesus. And it says no fuller. In other words, a, a fuller was a person who was would, would uh, whiten clothes. And the Bible says nobody on earth could make anything a garment as white as that. Well, there was also something else. So, again, Jesus' glory. And what we, what we could say about that is that <coughs> these three disciples got to see a little bit of, of the robe of flesh kind of peeled back, if you will, and Jesus' glory. We understand it's important that this glory did not come from outside in. This glory they saw, this brightness came from the inside out. And the Bible says in Hebrews that Jesus is the brightness or the radiance of God's glory. And so they got that when the veil was pulled away a little bit and they got to see that glory. And what was the point? Well, the point was they were getting a chance to see what Jesus will look like when he comes back in his glorious appearing on set up his kingdom. And verse 4, there appeared unto them Elias, or Elijah, with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Luke 9.31 says that they appeared in glory. So Moses and Elijah also appeared in a glorified form and spake of his decease, which should be accomplished at Jerusalem. So they came and talked about his upcoming Death. It's interesting that the word decease, as it's used there, is equivalent to the Old Testament word exodus. And so it's the idea that Jesus' death and departure, the fact that he was going to return home to his father. And so again, Elijah, Moses and Elijah, would encourage the disciples because when these two appeared together, um, Elias or Elijah represents the prophets, Moses represents the law. Both prophesy of the Messiah. So the Lord using this to draw his, his disciples' attention back to the scriptures, and especially there the Old Testament scripture. Well, <clears throat> notice the reaction, and Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, three booths, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elias. They still didn't get it. They wanted to honor these three, but they were giving equal honor, or wanted to give equal honor to Elijah and Moses. Well, we're going to find out how God from heaven straightens that out here in just a moment. They wanted to remain. And for he wist not what to say. In other words, Peter didn't know what to say. For they were sore afraid. They didn't know what this was all about, but they were frightened. And I'm sure, if at nothing else, they were at least afraid of what they saw. Jesus glorified, and Elijah and Moses also in a form 
of glorified body. They were scared. They were afraid. Well, God intervenes, and he said there was a cloud that overshadowed them. So a cloud from heaven. By the way, would this not be a reminder of the Old Testament, the cloud that, that led Israel? What they call the Shekinah glory, the, the revelation or the manifestation or token of the glory of God. So all these things they're seeing, and these men... Peter, James, and John were raised in the Old Testament. They were devout Jews, and of course they were, had been Jesus' disciples for a short time. And so all this is being revealed for them. So the cloud comes, and then it says, A voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. All right? Listen to Him. Pay attention to Him. Give heed to Him. Verse 8, suddenly when they had looked round about, they saw no man anymore, save Jesus only with themselves. Now, so here, so Jesus is left alone. That's so that the disciples here would understand it's not Moses and Elijah that need, needs their attention. It is Jesus alone. They need to give the attention to him. And the fact that he's now alone, and God said, this is my son. Yes, you know, Elijah and Moses, they were men of God. They had their ministry. You know, they fulfilled everything I wanted them to do. But now it's Jesus Christ. Jesus, my beloved son, that needs to have the focus and have your attention. And then we find verses 9 to 19, they return. And just... Or there's a way that we can think about this, and, and that is that as Jesus Christ took these three men up on the mountain, it says he took them to a mountain apart by themselves. Um, it reminds me that it's so important for us as believers, we need to get apart you know, we need to find a mountain, if you will. Maybe you've got a place in your house or outside your house. And you need to go there. You need to get on the mountain with the Lord Jesus. And I really believe that every time that we open the Word of God in private and praise the Lord or pray, that's a mountaintop experience that ought to transfigure us spiritually. And so, if you're not doing that, you need to do that. Oh, I, have an, I have an advantage. i got places all over the place. If I want to get alone, i got to just come up here and lock the door. I thank God for that. I do that a lot. By the way, I would encourage you, when you go someplace with your Bible, take a hymn book and sing to the Lord. It'll make, it'll make a difference. It really will. God wants us to do that, by the way. So, anyway, but those times end. You can't do it all the time. We can't spend 24 hours a day on the mountain. There's reality. There's life. Well, you know, and Jesus and his disciples had to come back to real life. They had to come back to earth, literally. They had to come back to reality. And reality was about to run to meet them. So let's see. In verse 9, here's a charge from the Lord. Verse 9, as they came down from the mountain, he charged them, 
that they should tell no man what things they had seen until the Son of Man were risen from the dead. So Jesus said, don't tell anybody until I am risen from the dead. And they kept that saying with, it, with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. In other words, they say, so what does he mean? And, and they were used to Jesus speaking in parables, and so they figured this is another parable. So the rising from the dead must mean something else. Well, Jesus kept trying to tell them, and he would more as they went on, that, yes, I'm talking about, I'm not talking about a parable here. I'm talking about literal death, literal burial, and literal resurrection. They didn't get it yet. So they kind of changed the subject. Verse 11, and they asked him, saying, why say the scribes that Elias must first come? In other words, they're still thinking about Messiah, kingdom, all those kinds of things. So they said, well, why do the scribes say that Elijah has to come first? In other words, before the kingdom. Maybe they're thinking about, is, is that what they were talking about? Because they saw Elijah. And he answered and told them, Elias barely come first. In other words, Elijah truly comes first and restoreth all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be said not. So, so Jesus said, yes, the scripture says Elijah will come. But the scripture also says there, there are things that will happen to the Son of Man. They, they just didn't get it yet. I want to just mention this, that this particular passage or this answer that Jesus gives is prophesied in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, and was spoken by Gabriel, the angel, to Zacharias in reference to the birth and ministry of John the Baptist. And you'll find that in Luke chapter 1, verses 13 to 17. And later on in the book of Matthew, Jesus was also questioned about that, and he gave a little message and said that Elijah has come. And that would be in the person of John the Baptist. Now, it's possible, we went through Revelation, and it's possible that Revelation 11, that Elijah will be one of the two witnesses. A lot of people believe um, that e Elijah and Enoch may be those two witnesses. And so that may be the actual fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy, that Elijah will come. Whatever the case may be, you know, we know that there will be two witnesses. And so verse 13, but I say to you that Elias is indeed come. And that's definitely talking about John the Baptist. And they have done him whatsoever they listed. In other words, whatever they wish, as it is written of him. Again, we're still, he's, Jesus is answering with reference to the scribes, what they said. What happened with the scribes? Well, the scribes rejected John's ministry. The Pharisees rejected, the chief priests, they rejected. The lawyers, the doctors, the elders, basically all the leadership of Israel rejected John's message. And, and Herod, and I'm sure that in their eyes, King Herod did them a great favor when he had John the Baptist beheaded. So Jesus said they've done to him what they wanted. And we'll see, well, we'll see that again someday, hopefully. Now, um, take a look as they come down. Verse 14, when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. Actually challenging them. And straightway all the people when they beheld him were greatly amazed and running to him 
saluted him. Now they were amazed, probably at Christ's countenance, because he looked different. He looked different when he came down from the mountain than he did when he went up on the mountain, maybe similar to Moses, where his face shone. But anyway, they were amazed, they were astonished at his appearance, his idea there. So they came running to him, and they saluted him, and he asked the disciples in verse 16, what, what question are you with them? What, are you, what were you reasoning or questioning about? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, who hath a dumb spirit. In other words, he, had, he was possessed with a demon that took away his ability to speak. Well, that's a whole other subject, but you will find as in the life of Jesus Christ as he encountered, pe encountered people who were demon-possessed that had different effects on them. So these demons have certain power. Sometimes it made them deaf so, and so on. So anyway... I love this. I chose, this is the reason, by the way, why we're looking at Mark's account rather than Matthew or Luke, even though it's repeated in the other two Gospels. There is something in Mark's account that, that, that we can, I, can, I can relate to and we can all relate to. So that's one of the reasons I picked it. And so um, he said, I brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit, and wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him. In other words, he convulses him. And he foameth, and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. In other words, he gets worse and worse. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. Now, in the context of Jesus' earthly life, um, he had already given the disciples the power to cast out evil spirits. But they couldn't in this particular case. Alright? So let's find out why. They could not. They couldn't cast him out. He answereth him, he answereth um, the Father, and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. Now, generation here, it means people. He's talking to a multitude and he basically says, you're faithless. And that includes his disciples. In fact, this might be the one time where Jesus publicly rebuked his disciples. I, I find it very interesting that throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, whenever Jesus' disciples are questioned or challenged, Jesus always publicly defended them. But this was something that was very important. You know, Jesus is saying, in, in effect, what's going to happen when I leave? Who's going, to, who's going to do these things? Who's going to do these things? Who's going to be here? Who's going to minister to these multitudes? Who's going to meet their needs? I'm not, I'm not going to be here much longer. Now, thank God you read the book of Acts, you find out that his apostles did a very good job of carrying on the ministry. Anyway, now... Verse 20, they brought him unto him. So they brought the son, this boy, unto Jesus. And when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him. In other words, threw him into a convulsion. He fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. Now this was not revival. Right? This was satanic. This was demonic. 
Now, can you picture this young man just rolling around, foaming at the mouth, all these things, and Jesus asked the Father, verse 21, how long is it ago since this came unto him? Jesus said, how long has this been going on? I mean, he knew. And he said, of a child. Now, by the way, the Lord has everything under control. And Jesus is not impressed nor is he moved by our impatience. Well, this father is about to get frantic. And probably we would too. But anyway, so he answers, verse 42, off time. And get this. Look at what this, this fellow, look what this guy and his son were going through. And off times that have cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. By the way, that's exactly what the devil does all the time. Now, there are people who follow Satan. There are Satan worshipers. And I remember years ago, I was reading a book about Satan worship. And Satan sends messages to his worshipers. And this fellow got saved out of that. And so he was writing this book to warn people about it. And um, talking about how he got his message, and that was what really got him to turn Lord. He got his message, and he thought, okay. And he, he knew enough about Satan worship that he knew that that was, if he, if he answered that message, or did what the message told him to do, and it's weird, I mean, it's amazing. Sometimes these messages came in writing. So that was a lot of power. He could only use it as God allows. But anyway, he found, he realized, he'd been with this group enough to realize that when you get your message, it means you're die, you're gonna die. And for example, one guy got a message to be at a certain railroad crossing at a certain time, and when he did that, a train derailed and hit him and killed him. And so, um, that's what happens when they when they worship. And so he's destroyed. Jesus said, The thief cometh not for to kill and to steal and to destroy. I am come in my life, and that they might have it more abundantly. Now, there's another thing I want to bring out. It doesn't say what here. But the devil just doesn't possess somebody at a whim. There's always some kind of a, a channel, if you want to call it that. There is a means that by which people open themselves up to the devil. Well, I just read a book, a novel by a guy talking about um, the, the, the setting of the novel. Um, the, 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 the name of the book is Abaddon, which is one of the names of the devil. Anyway, it talks about a, a dad, a mother and father, who had a teenage daughter, and they started having trouble with this teenage daughter. Well, come to find out, she was listening to death music. Death, D-E-A-T-H. Death Rock and roll. And by the way, it's all it's out there. And and it was satanic. And so she he didn't know that she was a fan of this rock group. And they would have concerts and they would, and they had a lot of worse things than that. The police finally discovered a secret hideaway where they actually sacrificed and drank blood and did all these kinds of things in their worship of the devil. And they, they talked about getting messages in that as well. And that sometimes this singer, quote, would, would the, the message would be transferred through the music to the listeners. And they all dressed in black and did all these things. 
And so um, this is real. This is serious. So yeah, you want to, those who have kids, got grandkids, you better watch what they're, you better find out what they're listening to. Um, people are dying. And it's all, you know, drugs are involved and sex is involved and all kinds of this all goes together. The devil uses all these things um, to destroy lives. A few years ago, there was a guard at the Tug County Jail that used to let me in to do my Bible study. And he and his wife, young couple, 20 years old, couple kids, they actually came to church here um, and they didn't like it. They, they put coming because they didn't like our music. They didn't like the fact that we sang hymns. Well, anyway, his wife, he, got, he came up missing one day. His wife started looking around and they found him hanging at the ballpark. He had hung himself from the pavilion. And when they did some checking, they found that he had hidden away in his house all kinds of satanic rock music. And he had gotten involved in this music. I claimed to be a Christian. A nice young man. I mean, in fact, it was one of those things. When I'd go to the jail, I, was hope, I would hope that he'd let me in because we always talked about the Lord and stuff. But he had another life. He had a secret life. And he listened to stuff. And I don't know if he got a message or what. But he went and hung himself. Left a wife, a couple kids. Just shocked everybody. I mean, I went to the jail the next week. And I mean, they said, hey, can you, can you go in the room there? Some of our guards want to talk to you. They're, they're just wiped out by what happened. So that's what the devil does. And the devil had ruined his life. And so in verse 22, oft times they have cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. See, he pretends to be a friend. He pretends to give good things to people that follow him. But destruction is where it ends up. But if thou canst do anything... Have compassion on us and help us. The dad's friends, Lord God, Jesus, if you could do anything. And Jesus said to him, verse 23, if thou canst believe, that if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. All things are possible to him that believeth. See, Jesus did this on purpose. He delayed. He wanted. I'm going to say. I want to say this in the right way. He wanted this dad to be frantic. And sometimes he wants us to get frantic. I'm afraid that we don't get frantic. I, I read something the other day. We've been praying for revival. You know what somebody wrote recently? The reason that God hasn't sent revival to us is that we're content to live without it. Are you? Do you care? I mean, hey, as long as I got my money, in, I don't care. Revival? Who cares? Well, that's probably that's one reason. That's what, like I said, it really struck me. God hasn't sent revival because we're willing to live without it. And if he, if he sends it, it'll be because we can't live without it. A lot of things need to change in our country because if anything's going to ever get back. Anyway, so Jesus said that. If thou canst believe. Now here's, a, I love this. I love the response of this Father. And believe me, I have prayed this many times. And straightway, in other words, immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. So the father changed his focus from the, from the disciples who were powerless and even the multitude. He said, Lord, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. That's, what, that's the whole thing. That's exactly what Christ was wanting to accomplish in this man's life. 
When Jesus saw, verse 25, the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying to him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore, and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he was coming to the house, the disciple, his disciples asked him privately, why could not we cast him out? Isn't that the question? Isn't that the question? And the Lord Jesus was, folks, listen, he was bringing them to this point too. This is not a game. Hey, look, man, he gave us power. Woo! He even told us we could throw him out and we could root up a tree. That's great. Well, it's not so great when you face real life situations. Why couldn't we? Why couldn't we? And he said unto them, in fact, in Matthew, he says, because of your unbelief. You mean Christians can have unbelief? You bet. But he said this, and I don't know if we'll ever get this. I don't know if I'll get it. I hope so. This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Think about that. And all, what do, you, do you have a situation in your life? Do you have somebody or something that's on your heart? And you've tried everything? I bet you haven't. Have you tried praying fasting? Have you tried going without food for a day? No, no I can't. You can't raise your hand. <laughs> right? You can't tell me. You can't put a dirt, dirt on your head or you can't tear your clothes or anything like that. You can't walk around with a long face because Jesus said, when you fast, don't let anybody know. Don't announce it. Oh, I'm going on a fast. Uh, I've had people tell me that. I, thought, I, thought, I feel like saving you moron. The Bible says you're not supposed to let anybody know. Oh, I'm going on a fast. Don't do that. Right? And by the way, well, the biblical concept of fasting is not to get something from God. It's to get closer to God. It's the effect is, is to be on us before anything else. So I'm recommending that you do that. Um, pray fast. Well, all right, I got one more scripture, all right? Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. I will submit to you this morning that um, this, this experience that Peter, James, and John had with Jesus was a real experience. And Peter writes about it about 30 years later. And it was still fresh in his mind. There's some things that, that a couple things that Peter wrote that we, we really need to take to heart. Because it's all part of what they, they saw. So, verse 16, 2 Peter chapter 1. Notice, first of all, the reality. But we have not followed cunningly devised fables. I and mean, we didn't make this up. We didn't get together and come up with this brilliant story. When we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses, of his majesty. See, if there's any question, any doubt, this is what I love. Scripture is its own best commentary. 
So if you ever wonder, well, why did, what, why did Jesus take them up on the mountain? It's right here. To show him his power, his majesty, and what it's going to be like when he comes back again to set up his kingdom. We were eyewitnesses. So this wasn't just a vision. This was something they saw. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the exit glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. So Peter said, this, we experienced this. This is what we saw. This is what we heard. But then I want us to look at, Revelate, at the Revelation. He says this, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. In other words, what he said, we have a more sure, we have a more detailed, we have a clearer, fuller word of prophecy. In other words, Peter says, we don't, we're not, we don't preach. You know, our ministry is not based on the mountain. We don't preach the mountain. We preach the word of God. So he said, we have something more certain. Was that real? Yes, it was real. And I, we're living in a day, and it's, it's, only going to get, it's only getting more and more, where I hear you know, people are so caught up in experience. I need an experience. So they read, people write these books, and, and recently there was a book written about a kid who died, supposedly went to heaven, all that kind of stuff, came back, and him and his parents, they, have, they got together, they wrote a book. But recently the kid said, I made it all up. I made it all up, just to, for publicity. What do they make that run? It don't happen. It don't happen. People don't see the light. People don't go to heaven and then come back and all these experiences. And I told you before about a man who would not get saved. He was in the hospital. I went through the gospel. He said, I don't need that. I saw the light. So I gave him the scripture that says, no man has seen it. He said, I don't care what the Bible says. I've seen it. I've experienced it. And we try to tell people, you don't test the Bible by your experience. You test your experience by the Bible. If your experience doesn't line up with the Bible, it means you ate pizza too close to bedtime, and the devil got in your mind or something. It isn't from God. And I'm so tired of all these things claiming to be from God today. Dreamers and all this kind of stuff. And it proves to be false. We can't trust that. We can't even trust our own experience. In fact, the Bible says our heart is deceitful. Above all things, if that's what we're we can't trust our heart. Man, people that say, follow your heart, they're ignorant. They don't know what they're saying. Don't follow our heart, follow Scripture. Follow our God. What does he say? All right, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, verse 19. Whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place. And many times the Scripture is compared to light. This is the light we need to follow. Until the day dawn, that is until the, and the day start right here. That's, that's when Jesus comes, knowing this first. The word, the word first here means foundational, original, of, of highest importance. Knowing this first. What? That no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. So that means we do not have the right to say, God gave me this verse. Or this verse, I, it means this. And, and people build doctrines, they write verses, I mean they write books 
based on a verse of Scripture. So what, so what it's saying is that you and I don't have the right to take the Bible and make it say what we want. That's part of it. But it also means that we have to interpret Scripture as a whole. And there's a lot of things going on. You know, people try to force America into prophecy. So they're right, they wrote, they wrote, they wrote, they wrote a book about how the, the attempts to rebuild New York City is a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. No, it's not. It has nothing to do with New York or America. It's all about, it's all about Jerusalem. I had, we had a guy come, you know, a few weeks this guy came. America is Babylon. <clears throat> no, it's not. Jesus is coming September 23rd. No, he isn't. And he didn't. All right? That we don't, that's foolishness. We're not supposed to do that. Not at all. For the prophecy came, one last verse, in old time, by the will of man, or came not, sorry, I'm sorry. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, in other words, ancient times, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So we always use that verse along with 2 Timothy 3, where the Bible came from. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Literally means God breathed. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And so we have people all the time running around because of one scripture. Um, you know, can't do that. Can't do that. And so we have to take it as a whole, and it takes study. That's why Paul said to Timothy, study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And that word dividing is like when Jesus divided the fish and bread and passed it out to the people. Not mean cutting it up, but it means to divide it and meet it out to the people. So, folks, we have to trust, we need to trust this word, this, this word, this Bible, on the word of God and be diligent and study and learn and compare Scripture with scripture. And so this whole thing of experiences, I believe, is only it's only going to get more and more. And I see things, I mean I see advertisements and I hear things about this latest prophet and this latest creature, and they're saying this and they're saying that, and some new look. And I've told this before, but I am dead serious. If you find any book that says a new approach, throw it in the garbage. Because we don't need this this the word of God has been well established. You don't need new approaches. We don't need new approaches to the church, new approaches to the rapture. New, we don't need new approaches to anything. Because God's word has been established almost 2,000 years since the New Testament was complete. The promises are there. Everything we need to know is in the scripture already. We're not going to get new revelation. Folks, if you're, if you're determined to find new revelation, you're, going to, you're either going to be told very much uh, you know, you're going to be very disappointed or you're going to be deceived. The next revelation we're going to get is Christ himself. It's complete. It's complete. It's finished. That's why in Revelation, there is a serious warning about adding to the book or taking away from it. Right? And that's being done all over the place, all over. And so, uh, praise, praise the Lord for his word. Father, thanks so much for this time you can spend in the word of God. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior, who came and died, shed his precious blood, and was buried, rose again, in order that we could be saved. Lord, just continue to work throughout this world, throughout this day. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. All right, let's take our hymn books, please, and we will turn to hymn number 249. It's a hymn of invitation. It's intended primarily for the unsaved, and um, perhaps if there's somebody here today who never trusted Christ as Savior, I think everybody claims to be saved. Just remember, remember uh, 249 is not... It's nothing but Jesus Christ. We're saved by grace through faith. But stand, it's, it's not our efforts. It's not baptism. It's not communion. It's not works. It's not anything. It's Jesus only. And so, we encourage you today. Um, you know what? Let's see the fourth and the fifth verses. Sometimes we have, I think about this young, this young man who was demon-possessed. Jesus met the need. And so, I was talking to the lady, this stuff is so real, I was talking to the lady um, who's been having a lot of medical issues, and she's gone to a couple different people, and they told her that they wanted, that this person, this woman wanted to let this girl um, allow her to cast out the sickness in the name of Jesus. That sounds great. Doesn't that sound powerful? Only one problem. This stuff, it's not the Bible. It's not the Bible. Nobody has that power. Jesus had it. He gave it to his disciples. That power died out with the apostles. <coughs> the in scripture and history. So Jesus can do it. Jesus. Just as I am, poor, wretched, blind, sight, riches, healing of the mind. Well, anyway, let's say, shall we? Just as I am, poor, wretched,